Welcome to Season 7 of American Political History, The Dominion of New England, William Penn. The thing about putting yourself up publicly, to be punished for your beliefs, is that you'll never know who you'll inspire. William Penn was born to a prominent English family. His father was William Penn Sr., who had fought valiantly for the crown in the English Civil War and in his later career as an admiral of the English fleet. The crown had knighted him and promised a boon for his lifetime of service. His son's early life was that of a child of the elite, educated at Oxford with a peer group of other sons of the elite. William Penn would be so inspired by the Quakers, who he saw as truly living their lives in accordance with Christian values. And he was impressed that they were doing this while being surrounded by the corruption of the forces of English society. William Penn would get expelled from the Christ Church College at the University of Oxford. His father was mortified. His son was questioning the guidance of the crown on religion and challenging the Church of England. Senior would find his son arrested and in jail. Because of his station, before punishments, William Penn was given a chance to publicly renounce the Quakers and sever relations with them. But William Penn refused. So his father cut ties and severed his inheritance, leaving William Penn, who lived up until that point a life of aristocracy, homeless and penniless. William Penn would pick up odd jobs and crash on people's floors. It was during this time that he met William Fox, and they became inseparable friends. For four years, Penn followed Fox on all his trips preaching throughout England and Ireland. George Fox and other Quaker associates, including Penn, would be arrested for insubordination against the church and thrown into squalorous English prisons. Penn Sr., who was in ill health, hearing of his son's plights in English jails, decided to go and talk to his wayward son once again. Upon seeing his son's total commitment to Christ, although as a Quaker, he ordered his son released from jail. And upon the death of Sr., the crown's boon was transferred to William Penn Jr., in 1671, George Fox famously conducted a missionary tour of the English colonies in America, traveling to Barbados, Jamaica, Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, Virginia, and finishing his tour in Carolina. This tour helped to envision the idea that the Quakers themselves should found a colony. And in 1674, when the Duke of York gifted the settled half of Jersey to Sir George Carteret, the western unoccupied section of Jersey was purchased by Edward Belinge. Edward was a Quaker, and this purchase meant that he could fulfill the Quaker community's desire to start their own colony. But Edward Belinge went into bankruptcy. The Quakers, often victims of persecution from English courts, were reluctant in general to take any of their grievances to those English courts. So they handled this bankruptcy internally within the Quaker community. They named a group of men to be in charge of the Belinge Trust. William Penn was drafted into the management of this new settlement. Unfortunately, the records for the founding of West Jersey are non-complete, and so there's not a great understanding of exactly William Penn or any of the other trustees' roles in the founding of West Jersey. They did order and clear the debts of the Belinge estate, and they offered a hundredth share of proprietorship at 350 pounds. Some of the people who purchased these shares settled the colony, and some were simply investing for future returns. The headrights, 
began at 70 acres per freeman. And in March of 1677, the proprietors drafted their Charter of Liberties for the colony. The most significant of its provisions was that the Charter of Liberties was to legally supersede the laws of any specific legislature within the West Jersey colony. This was a building block of the idea of a superseding constitutional framework. They also said that the consent of the people would pick commissioners who managed colonial affairs for West Jersey. This was an extraordinary proposal of popularly electing important governmental positions. The Charter also defined an American tradition for freedom of conscience and property, both being an absolute and unqualified right belonging to the inhabitants, and anyone who had those rights infringed would have their day in court, with a trial of judgment overseen by a group of 12 peers from their own neighborhood. No person could be arrested or imprisoned until after the summons for their trial had been delivered to their place of residence and they failed to comply with the judicial proceedings at hand. It is really truly quite amazing that most Americans today have no concept of the religious movement of Quakerism, who in the 17th century began to codify into their laws a concept of individual liberty which all Americans share today as a given human right. In August of 1677, the Quakers settled Burlington. By 1682, the population reached 1700. Those settling West Jersey were all overwhelmingly Quakers, and the Quakers would start new settlements north and south along the Delaware River. But the West Jersey colony would suffer from slow growth for decades, as the Jersey project would quickly be overshadowed by the growing prospects in the new Quaker colony of Pennsylvania. Although we don't know the full details of what William Penn worked on in the Jersey colony, what we do know is that when he turned to start his own colony, it would become one of the quickest-growing, most successful colonies in American history. It is always helpful to have a dry run before starting your own venture. William Penn's decision to seek his own proprietorship has been attributed in part to the difficulties of the legitimacy of the West Jersey venture. Like the Puritans before, this colony was settling with presumed authority and acceptance from the crown. And there was further complications when Sir Edward Andros, governor of New York, insisted that West Jersey fell under his legal jurisdiction. It wasn't until 1680 when West Jersey was given some acknowledgement from the crown. That same year is when William Penn, who had given up his position as trustee to West Jersey years before, began positioning the crown for his own charter and colony. In 1680, King Charles II would offer William Penn a proprietorship over an American colony as repayment for his father's deeds. William proposed the name of the new colony as Sylvania, Latin for the woodlands. The crown wished it to be named after his father, so a compromise was met at Pennsylvania, Penn's Woodlands. This is the last of the great proprietorships given out by the crown, and is in a time when Whitehall was recalling and reshaping all of the prior charters. In March of 1681, William Penn would receive the final seals for his charter. This charter would give Penn the areas between Maryland and New York and extending westward through five degrees of longitude. This was the largest proprietorship of all, a total of 45,000 square miles. And as you might know by now, bureaucrats an ocean away deciding the borders of colonies from rough maps generally make things extra messy. The southern boundary was fixed at the 40th parallel, except for a 12-mile carve-out around Newcastle, in a circular line bending southward into what Maryland considered its territory. And to no one's shock, Lord Baltimore and William Penn would soon be involved in the first round 
of the most protracted border dispute in American history, finally resolved in 1767, almost a century later with the establishment of the Mason-Dixon line. In 1682, William Penn set out to his new colony. His first steps was to befriend and negotiate with the Lenape Nation for the purchase of the land around the future city of Philadelphia. Penn went so far to even learn the Lenape language to ease along these negotiations. But the friendship with the Lenape would last precisely as long as William Penn himself was in charge. When others governed the city of Philadelphia, they viewed the Lenape Nation as an obstacle to their growth and used force to simply push them out of their way. When the initial purchase was complete, Penn assigned Thomas Holmes as city planner. The very idea of hiring a city planner who would lay out your streets in symmetrical patterns is something that only happened in these new American settlements. In Europe, cities were built upon cities upon cities with loads of confusing back alleys and side roads. To William Penn, side streets and back alleys were known for their debauchery. So William Penn asked the city to be constructed in a clean, grid-like pattern free from unnecessary walls or dark alleys. And in just another example that even the most brilliant man can come up with some of the dumbest ideas, like if you physically remove back alleys from a city, that will remove drugs, prostitution from society as a whole. It was always the back alleys that were the cause. When William Penn returned to the city after 15 years of absence, he would be disappointed to know that, like all other cities, if you knew where to look, you'd find drinking dens, gambling, and prostitutions in Philadelphia. No matter how hard the elite of England tried, they could not build their utopia free from the dens of sin found everywhere else in the world. America is a culture founded by zealous religious people and aristocracy from England. It's also populated by the degenerates fleeing their lives in Europe. Degenerates cannot be extinguished with harsh punishments, roads without alleys, or any other impractical thought put in place from the mind of the aristocratic elite. The Quaker migration to Pennsylvania has only one parallel in American history, that of the great Puritan migration of 1630. Both groups were unified by religious belief and a devotion to the notion that America was the fresh start for their movement. The first settlers to Pennsylvania migrated in a group of 3,000 settlers. By 1688, the colony had a population of 12,000, and by 1700, 18,000 people. Many of these immigrants would be German Quakers from the Rhineland, where Penn had spent a couple of years of his youth networking with other Quakers. This migration, unlike the Puritan exodus, was shepherded by Whitehall. William Penn had argued to the Whitehall authorities, Why not allow this group, which causes you such trouble, to go work to establish wealth and prosperity for both themselves and the crown in the New World? Penn began selling land in his new colony. 100 pounds for 500 acres of land, annual rents of one shilling for every 100 acres, and Penn encouraged friends and family to buy large blocks together. Encouraging settlement together builds community of similar cultures, avoiding the problems that happened in the early Carolina settlements, which were established by random strangers. For those that could not afford the 100 pounds sterling, he offered 200 acre estates for a man and his family in return for higher rents per acre opening an avenue for many families to settle in Pennsylvania without the now notorious process of becoming indentured to someone else. He also reduced overall costs for colonists who were bringing their own professional trade tools, 
knowing the importance to a settlement of immediately having their own skilled craftsmen. William Penn was clearly knowledgeable of the histories of the other American colonial ventures. His policies took into account the prior failures, and he designed some of the most successful colonial settlement policies in America. William Penn would then codify legal guarantees to every Pennsylvania, freedom of conscience, or religion today, trial by jury of peers that we saw develop in West Jersey, court fees that would be moderated so that they could not impoverish the accused to the point of perpetual poverty. For instance, the court fees could not be used by the government to repo a man's work tools, so he could not continue his craft. Although Penn's political policies were radical in his time, centered around individual rights, Penn was not a promoter of democracy as we think of it. Penn was an aristocrat who just thought that there were rights above a king's power over man. Penn would have openly agreed that government should be run by better educated aristocratic classes of society. Nothing speaking more to this than the fact that the Penn family would hold the proprietorship rights over Pennsylvania until the American Revolution. Pennsylvania would have an assembly of 200 elected representatives, comprised of free men of the colony, but this assembly would have no real power over the laws proposed by the governor and his governing council. The governor would not be elected. The expectation was that the governor would be the resident proprietor of the colony. For economic development, William Penn offered merchants the most liberal free trade port in the Americas. Why not come to Philadelphia? Then you don't have to worry about pandering for your share of a monopoly to the New York authorities. And to the foreign merchants that wanted to use the port, Pennsylvania was a land of absolute freedom of conscience. Why not settle your base in America? Dutch Christians are welcome just as much as English. The aim of encouraging all of these merchants was to have them set up their home ports in the harbors of Philadelphia, knowing that if they based themselves in a particular port, it was likely to encourage further investment and further trade opportunities within the markets of Philadelphia. William Penn would return to England in 1684 to personally contest a challenge in Whitehall from Lord Baltimore. Penn would not return to his colony until 1699. The Pennsylvania Assembly would immediately demand the right to initiate their own legislation, and Penn's long departure gave an opening for the Assembly to assume legislative authority, which they would eventually be given in 1696. With the long departure of the proprietor of the colony, this had allowed the growth of more ambitious Philadelphians to develop their own political culture and power. When William Penn did return to Philadelphia as its proprietor in 1699, he was never able to fully gain absolute control of politics over the colony that he had before his long departure. With the physical growth of Philadelphia into a major American city, it had developed its own politics that evolved into a beast of its own, which would not simply be corralled back by one man again. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating, and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again. And until next time.